You're listening to the Independent Mom Podcast, the podcast that shows you how to own your finances, reimagine your motherhood, and live a wealthy life with or without a partner. And I'm your host, Arielle Dean. All right, let's dive in. Hey, Independent Moms, welcome back. Today, my guest is Shayna Jones-McGrone, and in this episode, we are talking all things estate planning. And before I tell you a little bit about her background, I just want to say that this episode is completely full of information and details. Shana goes into so much depth as we talk about different forms of life insurance and how to leverage it um, and trust planning versus wills. So get a notebook because you might want to take some notes. But I'm excited about this conversation with Shana because I want us to think about all aspects of wealth, not just about how you make money or even how you enjoy your wealth, but it's also really important to me to talk about how we preserve it and how we pass it down to the next generation. And estate planning is definitely a key part of that. So I want to dive in, but before I do, I'm going to give you a little bit of background on Shana. So Shana Jones-McGrone is the founder and managing attorney of Artisan Law PC, a client-focused law firm that focuses on estate planning and business planning. Her philosophy is to partner with her clients to protect their legacy and transfer it to the next generation. Shana works with clients from all walks of life and particularly understands the needs of blended families, special needs families, and families with older parents, as she's been fortunate to be a part of each of these types of families. As a business owner herself, she's also in tune with the needs of entrepreneurs. Shana represents her clients with passion, compassion, and curiosity because she knows firsthand what they're experiencing. She prides herself on being a true counselor at law and offering effective, efficient, and responsive legal services of the highest quality. Personally, Shana is an animal lover and avid traveler. She speaks various languages, including Spanish, French, and Portuguese. She is a graduate of Georgetown University, where we went to school together for her undergraduate studies, of Temple Law School for her Juris Doctorate, and Cardozo Law School for her Master of Law degree in Intellectual Property. I am excited to jump into this conversation, so without delay, let's jump in. Hi, Shayna. Thank you for joining the podcast. I know we've been trying to get this going for a little bit while, but I'm super excited to have you because I think what we're going to talk about today, estate planning, is something I'm at least very personally curious about. And I think lots of times it's the last thing people think about when we think about finances or a wealthy life or generational wealth. And I think all those pieces are are important. But I wanted to start off with just going a little bit back to how did you get into this world of estate planning and, and what made you want to go down this path? Well, first, Ariel, it's great to be here with you. So thank you so much for having me. Mm-hmm. So to answer your question, this has really been an interesting journey for me. This is the last iteration really of my legal career. So I, from very young, I knew that I wanted to be an attorney. I knew that I wanted to be a criminal defense attorney. And I thought that in my youth, in my younger days, 
that being a criminal defense attorney, specifically a public defender, would be my way of mm. participating in making a fairer country. And I was very grateful and very fortunate to receive exactly what I asked for. After completing law school, I was a public defender at the Defender Association of Philadelphia for almost four years. And defender associations, by and large, do the bulk mm. of criminal defense matters. So I gained a lot of skills, but I also came to learn a lot more about myself. Mm. So I came to the conclusion for me that I did not feel that I was affecting change mm -hmm. the way that I would have wanted to. Because the criminal justice system is a system, it by and large, in my opinion, and we can we could certainly talk about this at a later date, <laughs> functions the way that it's supposed to function. Hmm. It functions so that black and brown bodies are populating prisons and yeah. prison labor fuels many industries and there's mm -hmm. a prison industrial complex. So it functions the way that it was. I really felt like I was a cog in the system. I felt in a lot of ways that I was window dressing. And because I stood there, you could then put my client in jail, right? Because if right. I'm not there, you can't. You can't. Right. Oh, wow. But if I'm yeah. there, right. I didn't like that. Hmm. In conjunction with that, I also, frankly, the pay did not do it for me. <laughs> and then also, I didn't like the toll that was taking on me mentally. Yeah, I can imagine. It was a lot. I didn't like the experience. I didn't like the feel of it. I just was evolving into a different person. Mm -hmm. So I knew that I wanted to be more creative. I left the Defender Association of Philadelphia actually not too long after my mom passed in 2010. I knew I needed uh. some change. So I knew that I liked business. I knew that I wanted to make more money. I didn't really understand much about wealth. Mm. And I also was a creative person and liked being around creative. So I got my master's of law degree in intellectual property from Cardozo Law School in Manhattan. I started working on trademark matters and business matters. I liked working with that segment of the population. I love working with entrepreneurs and creatives. And I did that. I became an entrepreneur myself. And then as I was in the midst of kind of moving my own practice along, I got engaged. Hmm. So I got engaged to a great, great man. I got engaged to a great person. That was my person. His name was Matthew McGrone. He was living in Florida at the time. Okay. So we had actually gone to boarding school together, but we connected, reconnected many years later. And it was a beautiful love story. So we got engaged. I had no real tie holding me to New York at that time. So I went to Florida to kind of, to really mm -hmm. be with him and start that life. And while I was there, as I was doing business work, figuring out what that was going to mean, I also came to kind of see that I felt like the entrepreneurship work was like one side of it, but like kind of what's the other side of it. Mm -hmm. And that was how I came to estate planning. Mm -hmm. So I saw a training course for it for, for from now, who is a friend and mentor of mine. And, you know, I was like... They were concepts that I never really yeah. had any connection to before. Mm -hmm, Trust-based mm -hmm. planning, will-based planning, just any of it. I knew nothing about it. And I was like, oh man, right? You you come from a background where you 
you don't know these things. These are not things that are familiar to you. Let's go understand how people really get and keep their money. So I embarked on extensive training on the estate planning side, both on kind of vanilla estate planning, complex estate planning, and also elder law kind of seeing what I, what I liked. And it has become the, the bulk of my practice. Yeah. I find that estate planning is fascinating. I was able to be around people who had more wealth than mm-hmm. I did. And I do believe that your situation increases or decreases based upon the people that you your are environment. Around. Yeah, yeah, that's huge. And we'll definitely yeah. <laughs> talk about some of that because I think that is a huge part of, right? A lot of what we have to do is start to understand what do wealthy people do, right? Yeah. How are they managing yeah. money? How do they keep their money, right? So then you can emulate that and practice it. And Because a lot of us don't know, right? And That's so right. the blind leading the blind, we're not going to get very far, but it's That's having right. an opportunity to tap into those environments that I think makes a huge difference. Yeah, it does. And the earlier that you start with these concepts, the better. And I definitely think that estate planning and the tools and the techniques that you have to use and the mentality that you have to use in order to get there, you have to be in a different place. Like you have to really care about people in order to do estate planning. You got to be thinking about people beyond you and and setting them up and seeing real possibilities for your family, for your, your, your lineage, your generations in advance. And honestly, the world. I mean, there, there's so much I want to I want to go back and unpack because I know we sort of touched a little bit on it beforehand, but I want to dig into a little bit. You talked about that financial life cycle, and then even just estate planning. Like, how do you define <clears throat> estate planning? Right? How do you think about right. it? Why is it important? And why should people be thinking about it? In terms to your point about their families and generations, and, and why is the wealthy so so good at it? I guess <laughs> right. Oh, those are great questions. Before I dive into that, let me just say one thing. I also want to say, I ta- I touched upon my marriage to Matthew McGrone. I want to say he was a great husband. My husband did pass very shortly I into our marriage. That. I appreciate that. I had a great marriage. He changed my life immensely. Wow. Like one That's of the awesome. most pivotal relationships in my life. And uh, so I, I guess I also touched this practice from a, a lot of mm. perspectives also. Yeah. Okay. So, and I will, let me also say this. I also think who you marry plays a huge role in your ability to financially plan. Yeah. Estate planning you want. That's very true. (laughs) Yeah. That's a great point. Let's talk to it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I, I think a couple of things. So I think that a lot of, a lot of what the wealthy do and what they know how to do comes really just from knowledge that they have that's passed down mm-hmm. in the sense that <clears throat> financial literacy is not taught in this country. And to me, that is one of the main kernels, right? So a lot of people can make a lot of money, but they can't, they don't know how yes, to keep it, right? Yes. I think that's actually the biggest piece we sometimes overlook because we're all like, yeah. make more money, make more money with a higher salary. But it's all about how much you keep that actually matters. That's what's going to also help build the wealth. Absolutely. Absolutely. And also, are you doing work that's going to fit your lifestyle? 
you know, going back to what I said earlier, like I finally came to the point with the Defender Association and a couple other things that I was doing. I was like, what you're doing just does not fit the type of lifestyle you mm -hmm. want to live. Mm -hmm. So I think it's also, I think a key thing is, is really being clear about how you want to live and who you want to be so that you can get the money to live that type of life and yeah. not being ashamed about it. Yeah. And not letting someone tell you that it's impossible. So I think financial literacy is one of, is, is key. And along with that is understanding how oftentimes those who are wealthy actually make money. What are the ways that people have money that goes on past them? Mm -hmm. So what we often know is that those who are wealthy are often entrepreneurs. Yep. Right. They often have some form of real estate. A many, many people use life insurance as a tool mm -hmm. for wealth generation because of its living benefits and its death benefits. So talk about that, because I feel like life insurance is one of the ones that people talk about. Right. There's whole there's term like talk about like what should people be looking into thinking about when they're evaluating or thinking about life insurance as part of that broader estate plan. And I know it probably depends Absolutely. on what their goal is, but. Uh. Absolutely. No, but I can talk generally. So, and let me say that I talk from this, from a standpoint of knowing though, I don't actively use my life insurance license. I do have one. Mm -hmm. Right. So I do understand the life cycle. And I also study what people have done. So one of the families that people are, certainly look into is what the Rockefellers did, right? Mm -hmm. That was a key, and life insurance is a key component of their plan. So life insurance really falls into um, two general buckets, right? And I'm not, and, and I'm excluding right now, really just talking about a burial policy, which is also a life insurance policy, but generally a smaller type of policy that often is going to pay out more quickly than other plans, than other policies, mm -hmm. and specifically for your, your burial or your final disposition purposes, plans that are generally 20, 30, 40, $50,000. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I'm really talking about high dollar value policies. The two largest buckets or the two buckets really are, do you have a term policy, which is going to expire after a term, after a period of years? Or do you have some form of a permanent policy? And there are various types of permanent policies. So term policies, as I said, are going to expire after a period of years. It can be generally, I think, anywhere now from about 10 years to 35 years, depending upon the company, depending upon their plan. And often term can be easier to qualify for. Of course, every company is different, mm -hmm. but it can often be easier to qualify for. You can often get higher policy limits, higher death benefit limits for lower premiums. And so I think that term is an excellent product, right? And it all depends upon what you, you want to do. Mm -hmm. Term can be a great product to start out with. Getting a high limit, paying a low premium, making sure that you have something to protect you. I think one of the most valuable ways that a person can use term life insurance is to cover their mortgage. 
So you have a term policy that's going to cover the balance of your mortgage. You keep that policy in effect until the mortgage is paid off, right? Then, you know, you either, you know, there's a couple of things you can do. You can either convert the term policy to whole for whatever the exchange value is going to be between either your current company that you keep it with and you convert or whomever mm -hmm. you're going to roll the policy over to or you let the, the term policy go. But one of the reasons that you use term as mortgage protection, because you have to think about it, if you have a family and let's say it's, let's say it's, let's go with the extreme, the extreme example that it's really just you covering your mortgage and you've got children. Mm -hmm. If you pass away and your income is gone, where's the money coming from to pay for that house and to maintain mm -hmm. that house? Mm -hmm. or or, and where are your children going to go if the house cannot be maintained? And is it worth the whole upheaval of their life? So how is that money going to be replaced, right? Mm -hmm. You have a term policy in place. That money can can be there, be paid out to make sure that that money, that mortgage is covered to still keep your children in the lifestyle and in the place that they've grown up in. Mm -hmm. Same thing if you've got a married couple, <laughs> right? And they're both contributing to the mortgage or say one, maybe one of them isn't contributing. What's going to be the replacement of the salary of the person that passes away? Mm -hmm. That's the question. So I think that's one of the most powerful ways that term can be used. Not the only way, but one of the most powerful ways and mm -hmm. a purpose for it. So at the end of the of the term, of course, your insurance expires. So, you know, the con is, all right, I've I've paid all this money into a term policy and I still get no benefit at the end of the term. That can be a con. Mm -hmm. And look into, as I said, converting that policy over to whole. You're not going to get dollar for dollar value, but you will still get value on the whole on the permanent policy side. You can also understand, though, you can also renew the term. So let's be clear about what happens. So let's say mm -hmm. you you get a term policy at 30, 30 40 years old. Mm -hmm. You get a 25-year term. You have your premium for 25 years. You pay it. You keep your policy in force. Do everything that's necessary. Life insurance, your, your qualification or your ability to qualify for and your premium is based on demographic information, your lifestyle information, your health information. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sure you can understand that the premium that you qualify for at 40 <laughs> is going to be very different at 65. <laughs> so when that term ends, you have the ability to renew that policy for one year, but based upon your current health and demographical situation mm. at that time. And it's renewable every year thereafter, but at your current right. Yeah, right. demographics, right? So often what we see is that once the term ends, the renewal, the new premium can often be 10 times or more than the premium that you initially had on the term. Mm. So that that is one of the downsides, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. So permanent policies fall into various buckets. So the tried and true that that many folks use is a whole policy. Mm -hmm. The the huge difference between term and permanent policies is that permanent policies are going to have a catch value, right? Yep. They're going to have a, a form of a living benefit. 
And these are benefits that you can borrow against depending upon the policy. You know, you have to look at what the repayment policies are or there may not be a, a, a repayment clause and you still may maintain your death benefit, right? So mm, every company mm-hmm. is different, but there's a cash value and these are non-tax dollars, right? Mm-hmm. All right. So whole life policies being tried and true policies, you're going to get your limit. You're going to have your premium. You're going to have your death benefit and you're going to build up cash value. The cash value that the policy accrues at is generally going to be a fixed interest rate. And that interest rate, which what's great, mm-hmm. some sometimes for people, whole can seem like a drag. because because that interest rate generally is not meeting inflation or is Mm. not really outpacing right you know we know really right now it's not outpacing (laughs) yeah for sure (laughs) then you have other types of permanent policies that may vary by company so the thing that people really need to know is that in in company to company no two types of policies may be alike. Mm -hmm. So you really have to be clear when you talk with your agent and when you read your contract to know exactly what your policy contains and what it needs. You've Mm got to be clear. A product from one company to another may not be the same thing. Qualifying for a product from one company to another may not be the same Mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. Exchanging the value from a term to a whole from one company to another may not be at the same rate. Okay, so you've got your whole policy. You've got what what right now is currently, I think the permanent policy star child, <laughs> which is the IUL, the index universal yeah. insurance policy, right? Which I, I'm not saying it shouldn't be the poster child. I think it's an awesome <laughs> product, <laughs> but it is definitely the star right now. So- Index universal life is a type of a permanent policy. It builds a cash value. It generally is going to have two components. It's going to have a floor below which the interest that you receive on your premiums cannot go below, but it is also going to have, you're also going to be able to go above that interest rate Mm -hmm. in returns because, because the money is is invested in the market. The company is allowing for a higher level of returns depending upon the fluctuation of the market, Mm -hmm. but you have a floor below which you cannot go. So you can have some really great returns that can outpace inflation depending upon what your your particular company is doing. Mm -hmm. Generally, these are not policies that I believe that you have really any real control on the individual basis about how the money is invested. Allocated, yeah. Right. You know, I think you may have some control depending upon the company about per- perhaps what fund or what type it goes mm-hmm, into, mm-hmm. maybe. Okay. But this is, you know, this is not like you're not doing some day trading, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and then there are VUL policies. So variable universal life policies. Um, so these policies are in my opinion, pretty volatile, right? Mm-hmm. So there is the money, your premiums are allocated to the market and your returns go up or down with the market. 
Mm. So you can go sky high or you can lose everything. Got it. Yeah. And that can in and you know that is going can wipe out your cash values that can influence how if how your premiums may change mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If, you, if your you know cash value is gone right so these were products that were i think very popular when they when they came out yeah they're it, risky it wouldn't be my, wouldn't be my first choice <laughs> let, let, let me just say that. it wouldn't be my first choice but everyone has to do their own evaluation mm-hmm. as to what works for them yeah <laughs> but it wouldn't be for me that's fair is there a benefit to having term so for your example around like bring your mortgage protection but then also having maybe an index universal life insurance policy or does it feel like you really just need one depending on what you're trying to do no you need the types of policies depending upon your goals Mm -hmm. right so it's not to say that the permanent policy can't be mortgage protection right it can't it, and it can't be that the term policy isn't just your your regular old life insurance that you use to pay out upon your passing it really just depends upon what the goal is and often you may need more than one type of policy mm-hmm. depending upon what you are looking to accomplish and how early you start and those are also not just the only types of policies everyone really you know if they can afford it and it makes sense if it's not covered by your job, it's going to want to look into disability insurance, permanent mm-hmm. and and temporary and permanent, right? Yeah. You're certainly going to want to look into long-term care insurance. Generally, you're going to want to try to get a rider on your life insurance policy for long-term care. Long-term care means care that you're going to be receiving in the fir- form of assisted living, in-home attendance, or nursing home care, generally for those people who are seniors, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the statistics are that 70% of people over the 70 and over need some form of long-term care at some point in, for the duration of their life, you know, mm-hmm. at some point during that, that span after 70. And 80% of people need some care after they're 80, right? So and how are you going to pay for it? Because long-term care is very expensive very exp- yeah. across all jurisdictions, but certainly in places like New York mm-hmm. and Chicago, mm-hmm. metropolitan cities, very expensive policies. So, or very expensive types of care. And you don't necessarily want to just leave your care to what you can receive on Medicaid. Right, right. That, that was super helpful because I think there's there, lots of people talk about insurance and what type of insurance and it's just what you get your job enough and no, it's usually not enough if you get your job because you leave your job and you'll have nothing. Um, right. But I think that's really helpful to think and break down the pieces. I also want to touch on, because you mentioned it briefly, wills, trust versus power of attorney. And I think there's a lot of talk right now around trust and how to be smart with trust, but you also have to have enough money <laughs> to actually make a trust worthwhile. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, a little bit of how to think about those differences and to your point earlier around wealthy and how they think about and leverage things like trust, what are some of those areas that we should start to think about if we wanted to think about sort of long-term or generational wealth? Absolutely. So so there are a couple of key things to understand with estate planning. Estate planning in my opinion is complete when it when it does two things. So estate planning really needs to address or have vehicles to deal with the post-death distribution of your assets. Mm-hmm. 
And it also needs to deal with what happens if you are incapacitated. Hmm. So the post-death distribution vehicles for your assets, the main ones that we're talking about right now is going to be will-based planning. So a will is going to be the instrument that distributes your assets after you pass away or a trust, the trust being the asset distribution vehicle. The other side of the coin is incapacity planning, which is going to be a job for your powers of attorney, both financial and healthcare. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the trusts and the wills. I will say this. First of all, I think more people than not generally need a trust. Hmm. And I think that unfortunately, because most people are used to wills and use wills, that that seems to be the standard. Mm-hmm. Whereas really trust, I think, in in my opinion, often are better things for people. Yeah, let's break and that will, down. <laughs> yeah. And I will say this because, you know, of the history, like a will is really the the entire purpose of a will is just to distribute your assets after you die. That is the, that is the only thing that mm-hmm. this thing was created for. And also, I mean, it deals with guardianship for your minor children too, but it really is a creation just for post-death asset distribution. Trusts can have living benefits, right? And I think that because that was the, the thing that was most common or most popular, And also because I think people can believe that trust-based planning is so expensive. Mm. I don't know. There's a cost to everything in life. So you're going to pay it now. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that they just were not well-known instruments. You know what I mean? Because, I mean, they just weren't well-known for Mm -hmm. various reasons. So Mm -hmm. in my opinion, the major drawback of a will is that it goes through the probate process. Yeah. So wills have to be submitted to a court-based process called probate, which is where you submit them to a court, generally your surrogate's court, whatever it's called in your jurisdiction, and your executor or your personal representative then goes through that court-designated process to, of course, first pay your debts. And then once your debts are paid, to dole out what is left to your heirs. Hmm. So the, and so it's a drawback for several reasons. It's a drawback because probate is expensive. Mm-hmm. So it can incur various costs, right? It can incur court costs, attorney costs, depending upon the assets you have, probably going to have accounting costs, may have appraisal fee costs. Yeah, it, They can just mount, right? And what we know for New York is that for probatable assets, and let me define that. So probatable assets are going to be assets held in your personal name at the time of your death, mm-hmm. right? So that could be like a house or yeah, be house, bank accounts, business interests, mm-hmm. uh, vehicles. Yeah. So those are some of the big ones. Yeah. I remember when my, my aunt passed away in New York and my dad had to do a lot of that execution and probate. It just, it took forever. It was extremely costly. I mean, all yeah. things that I don't think we or she anticipated, obviously, in the process. So, yeah. That's right. 
That's right. And people think that they're, I mean, you are doing something great for your family when you have a will, at least, because at the very least, you're telling people what you want to have happen. Mm -hmm. But people don't, like you say, get that there are all of those fees that are associated. And these are fees that are coming out of somebody's pocket. Right. Right. right? They got to be paid for first. First. (laughs) And it's not not that your assets are just there, they can be tapped Mm -hmm. in order to be used for these fees because your assets are frozen. But the court has to make sure that your creditors get paid first yeah yeah. is to make sure your creditors get paid Mm. and then everybody else gets paid so you know we in new york we generally see that five to eight percent of the probatable assets of the probatable estate goes to cost so let's say someone has an and and a million dollar estate can just you know you can have just a million dollar regular old house in new york now right so let's say that's your primary asset you've got a million dollar estate Five to eight percent. So on the low side, you've got fifty thousand dollars that has to be paid out in order to get this done on mm. the low side. So who's paying that money? That's right. Where's that money coming from? That's and that's what exactly. people don't think about. Oh, yeah. How is that going to be paid? Mm-hmm. Right. So that's a that's a big thing. Is the cost. And let me say this. I mean, you pay your debts to the extent the law allows, right? So trust me, <laughs> it's not about avoiding your your debts but the point is is that is there a way to mitigate the fees that are associated right right that gets done right okay so probate is is very costly we also know that will-based planning is very time consuming it takes a long time so you said it took a long time for your dad in in new york we're averaging 18 to 24 months of probate right so it's a long time so you got to think about 18 to 24 months where people who depended upon you dependent upon your assets, don't really have access to them in order to continue their own life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That can be devastating. And for it, and if your only assets are non-liquid assets, your only asset is your house, then you're probably, or your family's probably losing that house in order to pay debts. Yeah. And in order to in order to pay debts and then in order to actually pay out what their settlement is, right? Yeah, yeah. The other huge thing I will say, particularly for for those of us who have, you know, gone on to get our college and our postgraduate graduate degrees and all that sort of stuff, is having something to cover your student loans, Mm. (laughs) right? Which also may be a huge benefit or way to use insurance, term insurance or permanent because they don't go away just because you die. They're going to want to collect from your estate. And if they can collect from your estate, they will try. Mm, mm -hmm. It's a debt. Student loan debt is a debt just like any other. Probate is also public. So, yeah. So that means that in your county, the documents are available basically at that county courthouse and people can go down and see what's happening in your business mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is why... crazy aunts who come out of the woodwork <laughs> and take yeah yep. right which is why we know about the estates of various people you know we yeah. know about Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis we also know about people who don't die with wills right like you know our beloved Aretha Franklin you uh, know so sad you know beloved Chadwick Boseman And several others who have recently passed, you know a lot about their business. So Mm -hmm. if you have minor kids, right, people knowing that minor kids are going to receive a whole bunch of money when they're very young, 
is not cool either. So yeah. you know, minors cannot inherit outright. So if you haven't done any planning and you leave money to minors outright, you're setting yourself up for going through a court-based process anyway, because mm-hmm. there's going to have to be a court-created or court-mandated to... trust. Oh, <laughs> interesting. With those assets until the person turns 18 and then what's left is going directly into their bank account. So how does a trust then get around that? Like what what are some of the pros then to doing a trust? And do you have to have a certain amount of assets for a trust to be which makes sense. Yeah, exactly. So those are great questions. Yeah. So I think that there are certain criteria that people should look at when they start to think about trust-based planning. So I think if you own property, you should think about trust-based planning. Mm. I think that you, if you are a business owner, you should think about trust-based planning. If you have minor children, if you have special needs dependents, whether they are children, whether they are siblings, whatever it is, you should think about, you should think about it. And I also think that if you are looking to really set up wealth generationally and prepare for your family in ways where that money can last, I think trust-based planning is a way to think about it. Why? Why does that, how does that help? How does it help do that? I guess, break that down. Absolutely. So trust-based planning is going to allow you to guide not only to whom the money goes to, but how the money is used Mm -hmm. and when they can receive it. So it can be something as simple for minor children in that I want my children to receive their inheritance or a share of their inheritance at certain ages and stages of their life, as opposed to receiving it all outright at 18 years old, Mm -hmm. or they receive it only if they meet this certain criteria Mm-hmm. Or they only receive it for health, education, maintenance, and support because we're trying to insulate this inheritance from other sorts of threats. Mm-hmm. So it gives you ability to direct the money. It gives you the ability to influence how your how your children, how your loved ones grow. Or that's one tool. It should mm-hmm. not be the only tool, but right. one tool to do that. You know, implementing certain criteria that they need to meet in order to receive what you've left for them. Or if for some reason they have a vice, if they have a addiction mm-hmm. that they can't receive that money and go through it and feed that addiction and potentially in some ways, maybe hasten their death, right? Mm. Receiving a whole bunch of money with a drug or alcohol addiction is not going to be a good thing. <laughs> right, right. Right. So your ability to steward that way If you have property, it also enables you to put some stipulations on. Maybe I don't want you to sell this property because I think Mm. that it should stay within the family to continue to build wealth, right? Right, right. So, and I also think that, you know, trust-based planning allows you to direct beneficiary designated assets in ways that you would not be able to. So I think one of the most powerful combinations for financial planning at for the end of your life, right? Estate planning really is the combination of insurance and estate planning together Mm. because insurance (laughs) creates an automatic estate, right? Mm. So you may not in any other way be worth a couple million dollars, but if you've got an insurance policy that's (laughs) worth $2 million, you've already increased your asset base or your family's asset base by 2 million upon your passing. So insurance creates an immediate estate. 
And so what are you going to do with those funds? So insurance is a beneficiary designated asset. It does not go through probate. The person who is supposed to receive it receives it as the beneficiary outside of that process, right? Hmm. That money goes immediately into their bank account. You may not want that. <laughs> right. Especially if you have a young kid or something. Yeah. Well, exactly. And if you have a minor, you really can't do that. You're going to mm-hmm. set up a situation where you send the asset through probate because minors cannot inherit outright. Mm-hmm. You must be at least 18. But you may want to put stipulations on how they can receive that money, how they can borrow against that money, what they can use that for. Mm. And those are not stipulations that you can put on the beneficiary designation. The insurance company is not monitoring how your whomever uses this. (laughs) Right. (laughs) They don't care. Right. They're paying it out and that's it. Mm -hmm. However, if you have a trust and you funnel that asset through the trust, you can then put the stipulations on those funds. Mm. I think that's one of the most powerful ways that insurance and trusts can go together. Same thing with retirement planning. There there are some various tax complications that come when we're talking about retirement assets or qualified retirement plans. But in general, you can put, you can funnel those assets through, you Mm. often should, and put those stipulations on it as well. And when you say funnel through, you just mean that you have the trust as the owner as opposed to you personally or... I actually don't mean having the trust as an owner. There are times when the trusts will own life insurance policies and there's reasons for that. But the type of trust that I'm talking about, and understand there are many different types of trust, but at foundational level, what we're talking about, what I'm talking about right now is uh, the revocable living trust. Mm-hmm. So revocable meaning changeable, living meaning created during the course of your life type of trust. There are other types of irrevocable trusts mm-hmm. that we can talk about that we that we use for various techniques. But right now, foundationally, for many people, we're talking about the revocable living trust, the RLT. And in that situation, the trust is, and not in just that situation, but talking about that, the trust is not the owner. The trust really is going to be the beneficiary. Beneficiary, yes. Sorry, that's what I meant. Yeah. Yes, okay. So, yeah, so we're talking about the RLT. So the RLT is going to be an instrument where I I think it's an amazing instrument. It's a, Mm -hmm. it's a great, um, I mean, it's, it, I think it's so much fun, but you get so many benefits. Why do you think, I mean, we talked, you talked about it a little bit in the beginning, but why do you think more people don't use trust? There is, there is this association, I think with, you have to have enough money or enough assets. Is that myth or truth or how does that compare like in general terms compared to maybe having a will versus setting up a trust I guess it depends on how complicated the trust is as well but so I think it goes back to the financial literacy and I also Mm -hmm. think that it goes back to mindset Hmm. I think a lot of times people don't really value or know the value of what they have and we get mystified by the one percent Right. Mm -hmm. And so you think if you're not the 1%, then you think you don't have anything. Yeah. Yeah. Which really is a mindset issue. So how are you valuing what you have and what you've built? Mm -hmm. Even if it may not necessarily be under the circumstances that are most palatable to you. Right. Yeah. So I think that sometimes that mindset around perhaps not liking your situation clouds your ability Mm -hmm. to see what you have built and acquired. 
And if you don't value what you've built and acquired, and you don't have the knowledge about what's out there, then you, you don't even know, you don't know what to do. Yeah, yeah. I also think that at times there has been this concern about the cost of what it does to do estate planning. So here's what I can say to that. You know, I'm going to say this. I, I'm going to say a couple of things. I think that people find money for the things that are important for them. Hmm. One, I also think that nothing in this life is free. i think you're gonna pay in one way or the other Mm -hmm. so are you gonna pay the plan and 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 do it up front Mm -hmm. and pay less or or is your estate and your family gonna pay more yeah on the the back end yeah that's a great point so you're gonna pay it's just how you gonna pay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's so there's that, and I also think that, frankly, like you know, I mean, I think that the financial industry is built to in many ways to only serve the wealthy. Yes. Right? yes. So if you can't even get into a room with a financial advisor, you're often not going to get a lot of the information. I I think there's just a not, there's not a lot of education about it. I think people are hush hush about money. You know, money still is this taboo topic. Nobody wants you counting their pockets. Mm -hmm. There's an exclusivity to having money and wealth. You know, it's true. I mean, and I think especially, I think especially among minorities, I'll just talk about black people in general, right? There's always this worry about like, why don't people to know how much money I have and some of my rot. Like there's all of these like negative stereotypes, but a lot of wealthy people, they just talk about money right. all the time. Right. And if you That's don't right. talk about money, if you don't look at your money, if you're not analyzing it, it's not going to grow, right? You're not going to be invested in it. You're not going to be able to understand and learn. And I think hopefully, right. That's part of what I want to do with this episode as well is the more we just start to understand and talk about it and ask people about it, then you can start to actually make progress. But I think for a lot of us, it was just, I don't know. I don't know what my parents did. Right. And then you're like, right. so I just do the best that I know. And I'm not talking to my friends about it. And so everyone's just running around in the dark. And that's the fastest way for us to keep circling in this, what we that's think right. we're doing well. Right. But we're probably missing a whole cliff of things that we don't even know about when it comes to wealth building and, and and managing money in that in that way that's that's so true it is it it's it's so true just I, I don't know the the amount of you know techniques and planning and savvy that mm-hmm. that people have you have to open yourself up to the ability to learn from others and mm-hmm. be uncomfortable with not knowing so So why is trust-based planning so much better than probate? So first of all, it avoids probate. Yeah. So trust when you pass, do not go through the probate process. It is often far and above settled more quickly than probate, Mm. you know, months as opposed to years. And it is generally significantly less than probate. Hmm. You may go back to the advisor who actually created your trust. They may have plans built in for what they're going to charge you because you did the planning with them and they know what it is, mm-hmm. you know, so that may happen, but there just may be firms that you may go to that may just have a different rate because it is a trust. And they know that oftentimes the administration process or the legwork that they have to put in is less than if right. you did, right. Yeah. 
So those are really the main benefits in conjunction with what I talked about before, your ongoing ability to steward assets afterward. Mm-hmm. Now there are you you can create trust from a will, right? You can create hmm. testamentary trust. You can do that, but you still have to go through the probate. So it's almost like it defeats the whole purpose. <laughs> it, it, it may and it may not, depending upon what someone's concerns and needs are. Hmm. You know. So I just I, I want people to be clear. Yeah, yeah. Personally, I think that just create the trust but right <laughs> I, I just you know i want there are options people have options about yeah, what they yeah yeah right no that's huge i think that's really important because to your point i think part of it is like how do you just understand all of the breadth of things that you can right. take advantage of i'm curious just out of my own curiosity what has been maybe the wildest maybe not wild but like the most strategic estate planning or trust planning um plan that you've ever seen so i i will say this i will say that i think that you know i think that when you start to get into a revocable trust planning you're really starting to do some cool really really cool things Mm. i will say that and i will also say this so oftentimes people will start to move into a revocable trust planning because they are intending to lower their countable asset base for federal and or state attacks, state mm. estate tax purposes. So at the federal level, there is, once you go above a certain asset base, the federal government is basically taking 40% of the mm. assets over that amount. And then there also may be an estate tax level at the state level. So for example, New York has a, an estate tax level and that limit is about I think 6.11 or 6.85, or I don't remember the exact number for this year. Mm-hmm. But above that, you're going to receive a graduated tax on assets above it. So you may have that limit. You may hit that limit if you own property in New York, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. if you've got some retirement benefits and you've got life insurance, you may hit that $6 million yeah. mark, right? So what are you going to start to do? Or if, and if you, if you own a business, right? Because your business yeah. assets count as well. So what are you going to start to do to try to avoid that? And that is where certain types of irrevocable trusts can come in in order to help you to avoid that, those consequences, legally mm-hmm. avoid those consequences, and also still plan for your family. So irrevocable trusts are generally, you know, the reason that they are irrevocable is because the document is generally not changeable once it is created. Mm. And oftentimes you know, the person who is providing the assets for benefit, and this is just a general statement, this is not true for every irrevocable trust. There are many different instruments. That person may not be able to play certain roles in the for the trust. Whereas with a revocable living trust, the person who puts assets in or the grantor can also play the role of the trustee, which is the person who stewards the assets. They can do that mm. for the entirety of their lifetime. They can also be the beneficiary, which means the assets mm. can be used for their benefit. They play all three roles during life. Interesting. When you have an irrevocable trust, there some of those roles are generally removed from your ability because the IRS 
the government needs to make sure that you actually can't steward and have access to those assets. They can't actually still belong to you. Ah, so you're got it. From playing certain roles, right? Gotcha. From being the beneficiary, you may be removed from being the trustee. You may be removed from both, depending mm. upon what the instrument is. But because you're removed from those roles, those assets can't then be counted in your asset base for estate tax purposes. Got it. Got it. All right. So lowers your lowers your base and then, you know, allows you to do certain things with them. There's things like life irrevocable life insurance trust, using a life insurance policy to set up another family member so that they mm-hmm. they can engage in what is often called infinite banking, using the premiums to borrow against and re- possibly repaying at a lower later date that being able to be used for generations on end. That's a technique that wow. uh, one of the wealthiest, many of the wealthiest families have used. The the big example being the Rockefellers, right? Mm-hmm. That people talk about a lot being the Rockefellers, but certainly not the only family. <laughs> right. and, and you don't have to have their level of wealth to use that. To do it, yeah. Right? But what I think that the Rockefellers teach, can they? I mean, what I think that they can teach is a couple of things. Their wealth started from entrepreneurship, right? Mm-hmm. Rockefeller Sr. was an oil magnate, Standard Oil, right? So let's put Standard Oil aside. The point is, is that he engaged in entrepreneurship and he built his own wealth. Yep. And then after he built his own wealth, he and the family, there were two major trusts with their family, but they created certain criteria about how the money has to be stewarded who can access it and why mm-hmm. they also have, they have something called a, a family constitution. I think they also have a family council and a board of directors also mm-hmm. for how those trusts are managed. They have a family, you know, a family office and all of those sorts of things too. But the point is, is that they have criteria. And I think one of the big things that people overlook is that when you leave this money to people or whatever the assets are that you're going to leave, are you and your beneficiary, are you and your family on the same page about yeah. how this money has to be used and how it's supposed to be stewarded? You got to be true. on the same page. And what are you doing to make sure that you're on the same page? Mm-hmm. You know, so there's a famous saying, I don't remember exactly how it goes, but basically it, it's like the first generation makes it, the second generation spends it, and the third generation goes is back in poverty. Yeah, right? basically, that's what they say. Right? Yeah, by the third right. generation, they lose it all. It's gone. But the Rockefellers have been able to maintain this for six generations and counting. Isn't that crazy? And other families have been able to do this too. And it is it is about the money, but it's not just about the money because the Vanderbilts are the key example on the other side. Mm-hmm. That money's gone, you know? Yeah. And, you know, we know a famous Vanderbilt, Anderson Cooper. So it's not, it is about the money, but it's not just about the money. Mm-hmm. It really is a lot about the values and, and the have, stipulation, right? It sounds like it's almost, yeah, it's like the discipline to, to your point earlier around, to think far enough ahead right. around how are we going to protect this? What are the regulations that you're going right. to put in place that then hopefully, right, make it more likely that that money will continue on for generations? And that's interesting. And what are you going to continuously do to make sure that you keep the money? So they mm-hmm. have, that family, the Rockefeller family has had to do things to make sure that they continue to, to replenish make, that yeah, money. You know yeah. what I mean? So through good times and through bad, and they have, but you do have to be savvy about it. And their business really is their their foundation. So 
Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I could talk about this stuff forever, but I know I want to be mindful of your time. This has been super, super interesting for me and I'm sure for everyone listening as well. And I think we tend to not want to think about death, right? Or life insurance and wills. But when you think about it as truly a vehicle to protect your family, to take care of the people that you leave behind, and then potentially as a tool for generational wealth, like to your point around the Rockefellers is how do we actually make sure that we are putting things in place? And so I think it's super important and really interesting. I do end every episode with my independent mom, four fast questions. Um, I will adjust some of these. I know we're talking more specifically about the estate planning, more from an expertise perspective. But based on what we talked about today, what's one tip or resource the listeners can use right now to get started on their money or estate planning journey? You know what I would say one of the first tips is to actually figure out what you own. So do an inventory of what you actually own. So you know if you move from more, you know, from job to job, do you still have 401ks or IRAs or, you know, Roths? hanging out in other places Mm -hmm. what do you have do you know what your insurance policies are (laughs) you know the amount of people that I talk to they're like "Mm, yeah I think there's one that's left over there and (laughs) yeah you need to know what you own you need to know what you own and the other thing is I would really suggest that you have a real conversation with yourself and with an advisor about what what the life that you want is going to cost And what the life that you want your loved ones to have is going to cost. And then wherever you are, start to make a plan for how you're going to get that life and help them to get it. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. What has been the biggest influence in your journey to creating a wealthy life? Hmm. I would say the biggest influence has been a desire to continue on with personal growth. Mm. You know, you have the ability to create what you want to create, think about what you want to create, and then take the action to get there. You got to put in the work. Yeah. I'm not going to call the work hard. I'm not going to call the work easy, whatever. But you got to put in the work. You got to put in the, you you got to put it in. And you, you've got to come to a point of discipline. I think finan- I think financial wealth is about discipline and any hmm. success is about discipline. Like, do you have the fortitude and the wherewithal to do what is necessary to get what you say you want? Right, right. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and the last question I want to talk to is a lot of the listeners on here are moms or independent moms so whether they're divorced widowed single moms what do you want other moms to know so I want moms to know a couple of things so I think moms really need to have a plan for what will happen with their children if for some reason something tragic happens to them and I know we talked about a lot about the trust but I'm talking about like what's the emergency immediate situation Mm. So do your caregivers know who to talk to if you don't make it home? Do you have a temporary guardians in place? And do they know that they should be your temporary guardians Mm. if you don't make it home? Have you set up the instruments for long-term guardians? So, which goes back to the estate planning. Oftentimes, oftentimes those post-death instruments, the will of the trust, are really the only places that you can name permanent guardians 
for minor children after you pass, mm-hmm. right? So do you have that set up and do you have medical powers of attorney set up for those guardians? Because otherwise, if your child is in an emergency situation, a medical situation, whom you would want to take care of your child is not going to have any access to make any decisions for your child. And it's the same thing from when your child turns 18, right? Your child turns 18, you're still their parent, but you don't really, you don't have medical access anymore. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So I would want you to think about what's, what's that plan if you don't make it home? How are you going to document that plan and how are you going to secure it? Awesome. Thank you so much. This has been amazing. What is next for you and where can the listeners learn more about you? Yes. Okay. So what is next for me? Uh, so of course, you know, we we have the current work that I do at my firm, Artisan Law, but, and in conjunction with that, not but, I also know that I'm a coach. I've coached informally before. And now I'm doing it just a bit more formally. So I have started my own strategic advisory for business owners. And also I teach a particular course. (laughs) You know, everyone is so fascinated with the Rockefellers, (laughs) (laughs) which they are fascinating. I'm not denying their fascinating value, right? So I have a particular course about them called What Did the Rockefellers Do? That really delves into the techniques that they have implemented Mm. we do know a fair amount about what they have done and really how it applies to folks who are not you know most of us who are not Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) level wealthy right so what you know what have they done there's a way to make their techniques and really all estate techniques work for people at every level it's just making Mm -hmm. them work for you and that's the key about all estate planning right it's not a one-size-fits-all it's the key about financial planning it's not one-size-fits-all it's what is going to work for you and your family to accomplish the goals that you have, mm-hmm. not what someone else has? Mm-hmm. Yes, no, that makes sense. And where can listeners learn more about you? I'll make sure to put everything in the show notes, but where can they find you? Where are you hanging out most? Absolutely. So of course, you know, there's my website. So is this Artisan Laws website, which I know you're going to use. And there's the website for my strategic advisory where do I hang out most? Okay, so I'd say I'm doing more on YouTube. Hmm. You know, I'm using YouTube for the strategic advisory. You will find me on LinkedIn. I do a lot of stuff on LinkedIn. And um, so on Instagram, it's at Artisan Law Firm. And it's also at Shana.Jones. And then on LinkedIn, it's it's me and the law firm, Shana Jones McGrone and Artisan Law. Okay, great. So I will make sure to put that in the show notes, but thank you so much for doing this. This has been super helpful, really eye-opening and interesting for me. So please, if you haven't already, reach out, start to get yourself together to make sure that you have all these pieces in place. So thank you so much. You are so welcome. It's been great talking with you today, Ariel. Thank you for joining me today and tuning in to an episode of the Independent Mom podcast. If this episode resonated with you, please comment, rate, and review the podcast. Your feedback would mean the world to me. And until next time, please know that I appreciate you for lending me your time and your ears, and I will catch you in the next episode.